Well, the title of my message this morning is All's Well That Ends Well. All's Well That Ends Well. I wanted to read, uh, start off by reading just a, a couple of paragraphs from a commentary on Ecclesiastes that I think sets this passage up well, especially in the times in which we live. If I were to say the name Donald Trump this morning, uh, or if I was to say the name Joe Biden this morning, instantly, just like that, people are polarized. Just like that. Strong emotions and feelings about whether you like or dislike a certain political um, person. Um, politics is a crazy, crazy world. And uh, it's really crazy in the world we live in right now, isn't it? And it's not going to change. It's not going to get any less crazy, brothers and sisters, um, in the years to come. It's going to get crazier and crazier. But Ecclesiastes chapter 8, especially the first portion of this text, um, paints a bleak portrait of politics and people. The picture of the king in verses 2 through 4 is pretty dim. He does whatever he pleases. Verse 3. Even if his power sustains or promotes evil, and even if his power hurts others, verse 9. He also doesn't seem to be open to suggestions or corrections, verse 4. But the picture of his subjects is not much brighter. In verse 10, we read the wicked used to go in and out um, of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things, where they had done wicked things. It, it's bad enough that the wicked even exist in a society, right? Four times the wicked are mentioned in our text. Five times if we include sinner in verse 12. But it's horrendous when the wicked go to church and society praises their wickedness inside and outside of church. The author writes, when a suburban neighbor in an affluent, educated, and generally conservative city calls me a bigot for believing that sodomy is sin, we know that not only that the times they are a-changing, but also that the devil is as sly as a snake. Up is down, and down is up. Right is wrong, and wrong is right. And if our government is corrupt, or at least under the control of the curse, and if the culture generally approves of such rule, how are we to navigate our way through the darkness? Wisdom. We need wisdom. And that's where Solomon starts in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 1. Three points this morning. As I go briefly through this text this morning, I hope that it will inspire lots of follow-up study on your own and thoughts that you can go deeper in in your own walk with the Lord. Um, three action verbs uh, that come out of the text today that will form the main points of the message. First of all, number one, submit to authority, verses 1 through 9. Let's look at verses 1 through 5 again first. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. 
Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Now, we've talked before, when it comes to authorities and rulers, we know that there are times, there are points, there are lines that we cannot go beyond. When, uh, when we have to obey God rather than man, we obey God. And we are quick to make that distinction. When our ability to worship and, and live the way God has instructed us to live is called into question or conflict by the rules of the authorities around us, we follow God. However, the basic thrust of these verses as we look at them is to remind us that our ability to bend an authority to our will, in other words, your authority says one thing, you want to do a different thing. Your ability to change that authority's mind is very limited. Solomon's pointing out. If you're a minister to a king, the king's word is law. Of course, he's talking at a time when there was a monarchy, right? Solomon was the monarch. If he doesn't approve your latest proposal, it will do you no good to become the patron saint of lost causes, will it? If your boss has already nixed your latest, greatest idea, then continuing to hammer on it is a great way to get yourself fired, right? Pick your battles. The broader point here is that there is a way to live under authority that benefits both the ruler and those that are ruled. Verse 5, the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Think about it if those of you who have been involved in education, what makes a student a delight to teach? For those of you who have been involved in sports, what makes a player a joy to coach? For those of you who have had employees under you, what makes an employee a pleasure to supervise? Living well under authority is a widely neglected, underrated ingredient in true and lasting happiness. That's exactly the basis on which the author of Hebrews wrote to the whole church to follow your leaders. Do you remember in Hebrews 13, 17, the author wrote, obey your leaders and submit to them. Then listen to the reason why. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy. And not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The preacher continues in verses 6 and 7 on this theme of knowing our limits. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? In verse 6, the author here seems to be referring indirectly to the final judgment. 
the day when we will all stand before God. There's a time for everything, meaning there's a time when God will call everything to account. And, and however arbitrary, however unjust, our ruler's whims may be. Any ruler's whims ever be unjust in your, in your uh, inclination? However arbitrary or unjust those whims may be now, God will one day settle the score. However little control you may have about what someone in authority decides to do, no authority is above or beyond the control of your heavenly Father. Not a single one. And yet verse 7 reminds us of another limit on our control. We can't control the future. We can't predict it. We can't determine it from our very limited vantage point. When sportscasters, you know, sit around, you guys watch ESPN, right? You sit around, you watch it, and, and the game hasn't been played yet. But they, the sportscasters will sit around for an hour before the game has even started. And they will analyze it, pontificate it, they will forecast it, and for all their talk, no one actually knows who will win until the game has been played. So it is with us in our lives. In our seasons, in our times that we live in, we are like those who uh, are like in a movie theater. You're sitting there watching a movie, and, and the person next to us wants to talk the whole time during the movie. You know those people? Why is she doing that? Uh, oh, oh, no, what's going to happen? Uh, where is he going? And, and our response is, I don't know. We'll have to wait and watch the movie in order to find out. Often... The only way to find out what's happening in life is to watch quietly and wait. So much of the future is uncertain. And you can worry about it if you want to. It won't do you any good. But as much of the future that is uncertain, there is one thing that is certain. Look at verses 8 and 9. No man has power to retain the Spirit or power over the day of death. There is no, not even Betty White, right? There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Verse 8 is saying, no one is the owner, the proprietor, the manager of their own life breath. Every breath that you and I breathe is a benefit of a lease from God. One day that lease will expire. A car lease might have a fixed term, a fixed number of miles that you know you can drive in that lease. But you have no idea how many breaths there are in your life lease. One day, God will call the term of that lease. You have no idea when it will be. And there will be nothing you can do to extend it. Verse 9 
might be simply saying that once you're enlisted in the military, in a military force called into battle, there's nothing you can do to obtain a release, to get out of it. But it also might be a metaphor for death. When you're called to fight that final battle, you can't send someone else in as a substitute to take your place. And however much gain wickedness might seem to bring now in this life to you, if you devote yourself to it, it will leave you hanging when it matters most. So when you put all these verses together, it's important to understand how little control you actually have over someone in authority. But even more so, how little control you have over your own life. How very little control you have over the future. And however little control you have over the future, you have no control whatsoever over the fact that you're alive and continue to be alive. You did not give yourself life, and you don't decide when your life ends. No man has power over the day of his death. Death is a rock that shatters our illusions of control. But you know, as final as death is, as unnerving as death is, death is still not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem, brothers and sisters, is that by nature, we are not only mortal, with an expiration date. But we are spiritually dead too, aren't we? Before we come to know Christ. Our biggest problem, therefore, is that God is just, we are not, and He is our judge. That's our biggest problem. God will hold all of us one day accountable. Judgment will follow death just as certainly as morning follows night. And we are totally helpless, I should say, we were totally helpless to deliver ourselves from the consequences of our own sin. Chapter 7, just a, um, just a few verses, you can probably see it on your page. Chapter 7, verse 29, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. None of us has power to escape death or escape the consequences of our sin. But there is one man who had power over his own day of death, isn't there? Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18? For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Brothers and sisters, it's good to rehearse the gospel and the fact that on the cross, Jesus paid the debt of the sins of all those who ever turned from sin and trusted in Him. And when it came time to die... His life wasn't taken from him. Jesus gave it freely. He breathed his last. 
gave up his spirit, bowed his head. He laid down his life. He had power, the scripture says, authority over the day, the hour, the moment of his own death. And he further demonstrated that power over death by rising from the dead on the third day. And now he calls all people everywhere to turn from sin and trust in him. Turn and trust in Christ today. He is the only one who can deliver you from physical death. He is the only one who can deliver you from spiritual death. And he is the only one who can deliver you from eternal death. Friends, when everything in your life is going well, and I struggle with this just as much as any of you, when everything in your life is going well, there's an illusion that you're in control. And it's a constant temptation. You think that your success is entirely explained by your hard work. And you think your happiness is a byproduct of your virtue, of your great character. But then trials come along and they pull the rug right from out of underneath of all of that, doesn't it? You live and I live as if we're in control until we discover with a shock that we aren't. And that shock can zap away our faith many times, can it? When the illusion of your life that you're not in control, when that illusion is shattered, don't try to put it back together, brothers and sisters. Don't try to reassemble it. Don't try to rebuild what God has knocked down. Instead, rest in His sovereignty. Trust that He knows what's going on. It is freeing. Those of you who have been through dark times in your lives, you know this. It is freeing, it is comforting, it is strengthening to know that God is in control and you aren't. When your strength and your skill give you no control, rest in God's sovereignty. Notice the second section here in our text, fear God, verses 10 through 14. Let's look first at 10 and 11. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Verses 10 and 11 paint a picture for us of people getting away with bad stuff that the preacher saw. The wicked buried, in verse 10, probably means that he observed the procession and the gathering of people around the graveside. In other words, people showed up to honor those who deserved no honor. They showed up to honor wicked people. And in verse 11, the point is that when injustice is not punished here and now, people decide that they can get away with it even, and, and then they, they go even further in their sin. People conclude because sin isn't being punished now, it never will be. And so they 
go on and flourish in their sin. Verse 14, uh, to drop down a little further, says it very similarly. There's a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. What's Solomon saying? Not everybody gets what they deserve. Not everybody gets what's coming to them. Some people get exactly the opposite. And friends, this is a good moment to just say this out loud because there's a lot of churches that preach opposite of this. Churches, I say loosely. Brothers and sisters, there is no guarantee, there is no link between righteousness and prosperity. If you're ever tempted to believe that there is, Ecclesiastes 8.14 is all the proof text that you need to destroy that illusion. Especially today. The prevalence of injustice. Is there any injustice in our world? Just, Just a bit, right? The prevalence of injustice in our world is a common reason that people give for either rejecting or abandoning the Christian faith. But Ecclesiastes got here long before any of us. The moral objection to God's governing the universe is nothing new because there's nothing new under the sun, right? When suffering caused by sin tempts you to reject your faith, don't deconstruct your faith. Read Ecclesiastes instead. One problem with treating injustice as an objection to Christianity is that it's a wrong expectation. Wrong expectations account for a lot of trouble in all kinds of relationships, right? Oh, wait, wait, I thought you were going to get the bread at the store. Well, there goes tomorrow's breakfast. Injustice. A wrong expectation can imperil your relationship with others. It can imperil your relationship with God. Ecclesiastes 7.20, just the chapter before again, tells us, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Right? We connected that to Romans 3 in the New Testament when we went through that. And as we already saw this morning, uh, chapter 7, verse 29, God made man upright, Adam and Eve, but they sought out many schemes. So why would you expect justice to prevail perfectly here and now? Whatever gave you the idea that it would. But there's another problem with this objection. The problem with this objection to Christianity is simply that this view isn't long enough in either direction. It doesn't take the whole story, the whole plan of God into account. Look at verses 12 and 13. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. Now, in this particular moment, the preacher doesn't tell us how or when this will happen, but he does tell us later. In fact, if we skip ahead to the very end of his journey, go over to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 for just a moment, 
and look at the very last sentence in the book. Ecclesiastes 12, 14. Here's what he says. The very end of Ecclesiastes. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Brothers and sisters, when injustice seems to prevail, remember something. Remember that God has already brought about His saving justice on the cross. Amen? And when Christ returns, He will bring about a universal justice. And He will settle every score. When injustice seems to prevail, look back to the cross and look forward to Christ's return. Every gathering of our church is a rehearsal of that last day. Every gathering of our church is a preview in anticipation of that day. It's a reminder of how the story will end. On the last day, all of God's people will be gathered as one assembly around His throne, praising Him. So that's what we do every week. This is why we sing so many hymns about heaven and about Christ's return and about the final judgment. We're about, in just a few moments, we're about to sing the familiar hymn, It is well with my soul. How can it be well with your soul? When everywhere you look, the wicked get what the righteous deserve. And the righteous get what the wicked deserve. When everything's all mixed up, upside down. How can it be well with your soul? And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Because He will set all things right. Notice thirdly and finally, verses 15 to 17, the command to be joyful. And I commend joy, the preacher says, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Amen. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Friends, the limits that God has imposed on your life are not a threat. They're a gift. Instead of being mad at God for what He hasn't given you, love Him for what He has. And love Him more for it. 
Instead of rejecting what God has revealed because you can't find all the answers. Recognize, brothers and sisters, recognize that part of what it means for God to be God is that we will never know all there is to know about Him. Augustine wrote, If you have been able to comprehend Him as you think, referring to God, by so thinking you have deceived yourself. This then is not God if you have comprehended it. But if it is God, you have not comprehended it. Unquote. When you see no justice done by people, look back to God's work on the cross and look forward to Christ's return. The Dutch theologian Herman Bavink wrote at the turn of the 20th century gave us a, a, a profound insight into the relationship between faith and doubt. And in the context, he's writing about the doctrine of Scripture and how Scripture is totally trustworthy. And he's asking the question of whether the difficulties that we run into in Scripture, the questions that are hard for us to answer, the apparent contradictions, although there are none, whether those things should keep us from trusting and confessing that Scripture is absolutely true. And this is what he wrote. A Christian believes not because everything in life reveals the love of God, but rather despite everything that raises doubts. In Scripture, too, there is much that raises doubt. All believers know from experience that this is true. Here on earth, no one ever rises above that battle. Throughout the whole domain of faith, there remain crosses that have to be overcome. There is no faith without struggle. To believe is to struggle. To struggle against the appearance of things. Unquote. I'm going to ask the praise team if they'll return for our final songs here in a moment. And our leadership team if they'll come to prepare for the Lord's table. As these folks are moving... What can we think about how to apply this chapter to our lives this morning? Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Just think, about, just think about this chapter for a moment. We can't control the king. We'd like to. We can't stop death. We'd like to. We don't know the future. We'd like to. What can we do? I would submit the preacher gives you wisdom in saying, submit to our authority as far as we can. Fear God and trust that He is sovereign, that He's in control. And three, enjoy the good gifts that He gives us in life. In all of this, we know that even though there's injustice, even though there's death, even though there's doubt and confusion, in the end, and by the way, the end is not far away. 
Our life is a vapor. In the end, all is well for those who trust and fear in God. Let's stand together, brothers and sisters. We'll sing that truth in the old hymn by Horatio Spafford, and then we'll look to the Lord's table together.